0: Hello, our little crime academy. Yes, that's what we have decided to call our loyal and wonderful followers. And we just wanted to inform you that we have finally started our Patreon page. If you join for the low cost of $5 a month, you will get exclusive Never Before Heard episodes. I think we have about like three episodes that no one has heard yet. And as well as mini episodes, and we were, we will be getting merch in the near future. We want to do that really badly, but we, you know we want to get our little community going so join our crime academy and be a cool cat and as always i'm sarah and i'm lexi and we welcome you back to kills thrills and chills buckle up for this week's case Alright guys, I am covering the case of Donald Harvey and I did just want to let you know that this is going to be in two parts because there is a lot of information and I feel like it'd be better received if it was in two parts. You may know Donald Harvey by a different name, but he is an American serial killer who claims to have murdered 87 people. The official estimates of the number of people he murdered range anywhere from 36 to 57 which they could prove and he actually is a self-professed angel of death so that's probably how you know him that's what we will call him a lot probably not in this part next part we will but let's just dive right into it donald harvey who was born in butler county ohio in 1952 him and his parents were relocated to boonville kentucky shortly right after his birth, a small community nestled away on the eastern slopes of the Appalachian Mountains. In August 14, 1987, an interview with Cincinnati Post reporter Nadine Luthin, Harvey's mother, Goldie Harvey, recalled that her son was brought up in a loving family environment. She quote, my son has always been a good boy, she said. Martha D. Turner, who was principal of the elementary school Harvey attended for eight years, backed up McKinney's comments in her own interview with the Cincinnati Post. Quote, Donnie was a very special child to me, she said. He was always clean and well-dressed with his hair trimmed. He was a happy child, very sociable, and well-liked by the other children. He was a handsome boy with big brown eyes and dark curly hair. He always had a smile for me. There was never any indication of any abnormality. Former classmates of Harvey described him as a loner and a teacher's pet. He rarely participated in extracurricular activities, opting instead to read books and dream about the future. Following his graduation from Sturgeon Elementary School, Harvey entered Boonville High School in 1968. He was earning A's and B's in most classes with little effort. But he became bored with the daily routine and dropped out of high school. Having no real goals, Harvey was not sure what he wanted to do with his newfound freedom. For unknown reasons, he eventually decided to relocate to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he secured his job at a local factory. In 1970, so this is two years after, work began to slow at the plant and Harvey was eventually laid off. His mother called him a few days later and asked him to travel to Kentucky and visit his ill grandfather, who was recently placed in a hospital there. Harvey agreed and within days set off for a Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky. Although no one knew it at the time, this trip would later prove to be the beginning of a long journey into madness and murder. While in Kentucky, Harvey spent much of his time at Marymount Hospital and was soon well known and liked by the nuns who worked there. During one particular conversation, one of the nuns asked Harvey if he would be interested in working there as an orderly. Since he was currently unemployed and didn't want another factory job, Harvey agreed and started to work there the next day. Although he was not a trained nurse or doctor, Harvey's duties required him to spend hours alone with patients. Some of his duties also included changing bedpans, inserting catheters, and passing out medications. Harvey's first few weeks at the hospital were uneventful, but something snapped within him along the way. To this day, criminal psychologists are unable to explain what brought out his murderous tendencies. Whether he was unable to cope with the pain and suffering around him, or simply enjoyed watching his victims die, we may never know. According to Harvey's later confessions, he considered himself an quote-unquote angel of death or mercy killer, but the details he eventually revealed about his first murder negate that self-serving description. During an evening shift, just months after starting at the hospital, Donald Harvey committed his first murder. Years later, in a 1997 interview with Cincinnati Post reporter Dan Horn, Harvey described it. When he walked into a private room to check on a stroke victim, the patient rubbed feces in his face. Harvey became angry and lost control. Uh, Harvey said this, quote, The next thing I knew, I'd smothered him. It was like I was, it was the last straw. I just lost it. I wanted to help the man and he wanted to rub that in my face. Following the murder, Harvey cleaned up the patient and hopped into the shower before notifying the nurses. No one ever questioned it, he said. Just three weeks after committing his first murder, he killed again when he disconnected an oxygen tank at an elderly woman's bedside. As the weeks went by and no one detected foul play in his first two murders, Harvey became more brazen. Whether out of boredom, opportunity, or experimentation, his methods varied with each murder. He used various items such as plastic bags, morphine, and a variety of drugs to kill more than a dozen patients in one year. In one case, he chose an exceptionally brutal method. The patient had an argument with Harvey because he thought Harvey was trying to kill him. Valid. And during the course of the argument, he reportedly knocked Harvey out with a bedpan. Upon recovering from the blow, Harvey waited till later that night into the patient's room and stuck a coat hanger through his catheter, <gasps> and as a result of the puncture, infection set in, and the man died a few days later. Oh, that I am not be okay. So uh, painful. Uh, what? Stop! I need a minute. <laughs> That's felt. Also, too, like, did they just not like run autopsies on any of these bodies? I guess this was what? like. He was it was in patients. 71 true. So i mean and back then i'm sure they weren't even looking at nurses yeah. like that yeah. or like orderlies or anything yeah. like that that's so. true the so 70s were a different time. <sighs> sadly um all right on march 31st 1971 a drunk and disorderly harvey was arrested for burglary while being questioned about the crime harvey began babbling incoherently about the murders he had committed The arresting officers looked into his claims and questioned him extensively about them, but in the end, they were unable to find any substantial evidence to back them up or charge him with any crime relating to them. A few weeks later, he went to trial for the burglary charges and pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of petty theft. After paying a small fine for his indiscretion, Harvey decided it was time for another change of scenery and enlisted in the United States Air Force. Harvey served less than a year in the Air Force before he received a general discharge in March 1972. His record states unspecified grounds for the discharge, but it was widely rumored at the time that his superiors had learned of his confessions to the Kentucky police and did not want to deal with any similar matters in the future. Smart. Fair. After his release from the military, Harvey dealt with several bouts of depression. By July 1972, he was unable to control his inner demons and decided to commit himself to the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky. Harvey remained in the mental ward of the facility until August 25th. So this is over a month and a half. Okay. But then admitted himself again a few weeks later following a suicide attempt in the hospital. Harvey was placed in restraints and over the course of the next few weeks received 21 electroshock therapy treatments. And I have a little note on this. So I'm just gonna read you my little okay. note. So I was I really feel that this is very excessive for a patient who came in for depression and suicidal tendencies. But I actually researched an electroconvulsive de- therapy ECT is still used in certain cases for s- severe depression. Okay. I mean, I'm not a professional when it comes to ECT, yeah, so I can't speak on the benefits or debunk it, but in my opinion, I believe this is a little excessive. I also suffer from bipolar depression and I can't even imagine going through one of these therapies, let alone 21. Yeah, that's a lot. So, I don't know if that also I mean, he was clearly killing people before this, but yeah. like 21 times. That's yeah, insane. A lot. On October 17, 1972, Harvey was again released from the hospital. Goldie Harvey, his mother, later condemned the hospital for releasing her son so abruptly, feeling that he had shown no apparent signs of improvement from the time of his admittance. Harvey spent the next few months trying to get his life back in order and eventually found work as a part time nurse's aide at Cardinal Hill Hospital in Lexington. In June 1973, He started a second nursing job at Lexington's Good Samaritan Hospital. Harvey kept both jobs until 1974 when he took up a job as a telephone operator and then secured a clerical job at St. Luke's Hospital in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. According to his later confessions, Harvey was able to control his urge to kill during this time. The more feasible explanation would be that he did not have the same access to the patients as he did at Marymount Hospital which could also explain why he shifted from job to job during this time. I was going to say. He he didn't have the opportunity. Yeah. That's what it was. It wasn't there. It's funny that we say that (laughs) because I wrote, the majority of serial killers are opportunists and Donald Harvey was a man with few opportunities. He had not yet evolved enough to take his urges outside of the place he felt safe in committing his crimes, the dimly lit patient rooms. Harvey was a different kind of hunter and in order for him to get a hold of his prey he had to first find the right environment. So we fast forward to September 1975. Harvey moved back to Cincinnati, Ohio. Within weeks he got a job working a night shift at the Cincinnati VA Medical Hospital. Harvey's duties varied and he performed several different tasks depending on where he was needed at the time. He worked as a nursing assistant, housekeeping aide, cardiac catheterization technician and an autopsy assistant what (laughs) harvey had found his niche and wasted little time in starting where he had left off and since he worked at a hospital and at night he had very little supervision and unlimited access to virtually all areas of the hospital oh that's so scary Mm -hmm. and this gave him more of an opportunity to begin his killing sprees again oh god okay Over the next 10 years of working at this hospital, Harvey murdered at least 15 patients while working at the hospital. He kept a precise diary of his crimes and took notes on each victim, detailing how he murdered them. And then these are some of the ones. Pressing a plastic bag and wet towel over the mouth and nose. Sprinkling rat poison in a patient's dessert. Adding arsenic and cyanide to orange juice. Injecting cyanide into into the IV tube. Injecting cyanide into a patient's buttocks. All the while Harvey was committing his crimes. He was re- refining his techniques by studying medical journals for underlying hints of how to conceal his crimes. Oh my God. Clearly, like they said, he clearly was smart. Yeah, like you me. Like, no and for anyone Whoa. who doesn't know about cyanide poisoning, which <laughs> don't put into Google. Mm. Because I said Lexi a snap before and I was like... How does cyanide poisoning like kill you? And the first thing that came up was uh, like, <laughs> yeah, like a suicide prevention thing. And I was like, oh no, You're like oh no, that wasn't for me. I was like, my FBI agent's going to be very concerned for me because <laughs> I'm not doing this. <laughs> but for whoever doesn't know about it, cyanide prevents the cells of the body from using oxygen. When this happens, the cells die. Cyanide is more harmful to the heart and brain than to other organs because the heart and brain use most of the oxygen in your body. Death can occur within seconds after a large dose of cyanide is in the patient. And if you ever heard, this is probably where you'll hear it from. If someone has cyanide like overdose or poisoning, the way they tell in autopsy is because it smells like so much almonds. Over the years, he amassed an astounding 30 pounds of cyanide, which he had slowly taken from the hospital and kept at home for safekeeping. Typically, Harvey would mix a vial of cyanide or arsenic at home and then bring it to work. When nobody was around, he would slip the mixture into his victim's food or pour it directly into their gastric tube. The early 1980s brought about variations in Harvey's methods. He moved in with a gay lover, Carl Howler and soon began poisoning him out of the fear that his mate was cheating on him. Harvey would slip small doses of arsenic into Carl's food so that he would be too ill to leave their apartment. Harvey's confidence was hitting peak levels, and he began feeling as though he was unstoppable. On one occasion, following an argument with the female neighbor, Harvey laced one of her beverages with hepatitis serum, which is hepatitis B, nearly killing her before the infection was diagnosed and treated. Another neighbor, Helen Metzger, was not so lucky. Harvey put arsenic in one of her pies, and she died later that week at a local hospital. In 1983 of April, Harvey had a squabble. I love that word. (laughs) Had a squabble with Carl's parents, his boyfriend, and began to poison their food with arsenic. On May 1st, 1983, Carl's father, Henry, suffered a stroke and was remitted to Providence Hospital. Harvey visited Henry's henry howler uh, carl's dad there and placed arsenic in his pudding before leaving oh my god henry died later that night harvey continued to poison carl's mother margaret off and on for the next year but was unsuccessful in attempts to kill her in january 1984 carl broke off their relationship with harvey and asked him to move out harvey was angry at the rejection and spent the next two years trying to kill carl with his poisonous concoctions At one point, he even tried to kill a female friend of Carl's as a way to get revenge. While neither attempt worked, he did manage to land um, Carl in the hospital at one point as a result of the poisons he had unknowingly ingested. So, at any time, were any of these people, like, did they find any of the cyanide or arsenic poisoning? Or, like, would these people just go to the hospital and they'd be like, oh, you're just with." I think they just said they were sick, but it's hard if, even like if you have detect. too much cyanide in your body, there's cyanide in medications. True. Over-the-counter medications. So, shit. it's like you might just be taking too much medication. Oh, my God. So, it's, they can't say anything. So, arsenic is a little bit more. Also, too, like, oh, my God. could you imagine, like, all these people getting sick Yeah. And like, bro, you're a bad omen. Yeah, right? No, fuck that. Oh, my God. That's why they called him the angel of death. Yeah. Because they were like making fun of him for like all of his patients dying. Look into it, you fucker. (laughs) What? Isn't that like a big fucking red flag? Oh my God. Apparently not. Because he got away with this for how long? I can't. It's so fucked up. All right. While leaving work on July 18th, 1985, security guards noticed Harvey acting suspiciously and decided to search a gym bag he was carrying with him. Inside the satchel, the guards discovered a thirty eight caliber pistol, hypodermic needles, yes, surgical scissors and gloves, a cocaine spoon, various medical texts, two occult books, and a biography of serial killer Sabraj, who is a French serial killer and I don't think thief. I know that one. He was yeah he um, actually preyed on Western tourists traveling mm-hmm. on the hippie trail of South asia during mm, the 1970s okay, yeah. so what after they found all of this he was only fined fifty dollars for carrying a firearm on federal property harvey was then given the option to quietly resign from his job rather than being fired nothing about the incident was ever noted in his work record and hospital authorities did not open investigation to determine if harvey had committed any other crimes while working the there fuck yep that's why, but that's why he kept going. Yes, because he's he like, like, "Oh, I invincible. can get away with this." Yeah. Oh my god, <sighs> it's crazy. Seven months later, in February 1986, Harvey once again got work at a local hospital. This time, he was hired as a part-time nurse's aide at Cincinnati's Drake Memorial Hospital. His new employers were unaware of the incident at his previous job. How? Because it was it was never documented. What the no? I said they never put yeah, it in his work record. Yeah. This is annoying. And his work folder stated nothing but good things about him. Harvey soon earned a full-time position at the hospital and settled back into his old routine. Over the next 13 months, Harvey murdered another 23 patients by disconnecting life support machines, injecting air into vents, suffocation, and injections of arsenic, cyanide, and petroleum-based cleansers. Mm. So this was when he got that job, (laughs) that was 1986, Yeah, and authorities became suspicious of Harvey in April 1987. About damn time. Right? It's been like 20 years. After the death of John Powell, a patient who was comatose for several months, but had since started to recover. During the autopsy, an assistant coroner noticed the faint scent of almonds, the telltale sign of cyanide. Authorities were unable to find any evidence or motive pointing towards any of Powell's friends or family, so they soon began to focus on hospital employees who had access to Powell's room. The list was short, and upon learning Donald Harvey's hospital nickname, Angel of Death, given to him because he was always seemed to be around when someone died, authorities began to focus their entire investigation on him. Finally! Dun, dun, dun! But, yep, that is the end of part one. Next week, I am going to dive into the arrest, trial, conviction, as well as some interesting psychological theories on why Harvey committed these crimes. Because he kept getting away with it! Yeah. Yeah, it's fucked up. It's so annoying. I'm annoyed. Like, I know. It'll You'll just get even more uh, nice. annoyed. Okay. Because <laughs> I think they go into more detail about, like, the Jesus, murders stuff, well, and stuff. I, like, I shouldn't say I can't wait, but I'm, like, eager to, yeah. like, like, it's, it's a conviction and everything? It's this, an infuriating game. I'm infuriating. so angry, I know. Oh. Wait, I'll leave It'll leave it. I know. <laughs> <Hey girl! laughs> but as always, thank you both for listening. Thank you both. <laughs> thank you all so- for listening in. And we love and appreciate every one of you. See you next week, our little crime academy. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.